Hey friends, we hope you enjoy this sermon from St. Jude Oak Cliff. And if nobody has told you today that they love you, we do. But more importantly, God does. All right, I'm excited. We're going to continue this Desiring the Best of Advent series. Uh, and I titled this Learning from Wombs. And you'll understand a little bit more when we get into it. And so our passage today, Luke 1, 5 through 25, and then 39 through 45. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame, according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. When his division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of the incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. How can I know this, Zechariah asked the angel, for I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. And when he did come out, he could not speak to them. And then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary, and he was making signs to them, and he remained speechless. And when the days of his ministry were complete, he went back home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside of her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside of me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word and that you preserved it for us to learn about uh, how you sent your son into the world and how you sent your son's cousin, John, into the world. Uh, would you be with me as I, as I teach out of these passages? Would you allow my words to be beautiful, true, and right this morning? And make it acceptable to you and let it strengthen and encourage us, Lord. I ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Um, I often, when I'm preparing sermons, I try to start with like an illustration, and that's usually the last thing that I prepare. So what I do first, I spend time in the Word, I read all week, 
you know, I spend time in commentaries, and I sort of have my idea of where the, the, the sermon's going to go. And then often I can't think of a sermon illustration, so I sit down with Alex, my roommate, and I say, will you help me here? Can you help me come up with a sermon illustration? And she's helpful. I'll be like, think of a movie, think of whatever. And so she sits down, and I said, Alex, I want to talk about rivalry this week. And so I'm trying to think of a story where I wanted something or I wanted to win something, and someone else won it instead, and I can't come up with anything. And she looked me dead in the eye and said, I'm sorry that's never happened to you as someone who's won all the awards. And so I got my big number two mechanical pencil and wrote down verbatim what she said. I have it quoted right here. But as she said that, it actually triggered in me this this memory that I had that I probably had buried deep down because it's a really painful memory. The reality is, is like I... I grew up with a best friend. Like, we met in the fifth grade, and we were best friends all the way through elementary school, junior high, high school, and we went to college together, and we were roommates. And I would have told you we were great competitors. I would have told you we pushed each other to make each other better, and that it was good for us, and competition breeds the best in each other. And it wasn't until we got to college that late one night she said to me, if you had never moved to Dell City, I would have won all those awards. And that was the moment I realized we weren't competitors. We were rivals, and I never knew it. And it was so painful. And she was like, I've got to find out who I am without you. And we spent a season apart, and I was crushed. And you know what she discovered? I'm the best. She came back. I was like, cut out of it. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. She did come back. But it was hard for us to rebuild our friendship. I felt so betrayed. I was replaying all of our childhood memories where I I thought we were winning. I thought it was great that the two of us, one and two, were winning all the time. And it was, it was much later that I learned we weren't competitors, we were rivals, and it wasn't good for her. And it was painful for me to replay so many memories that were happy for me to learn that those memories for her were bittersweet. And so I began reflecting on this idea of, like, rivalries in sports are great. That's what makes sports so terrific. We love rivalries. We love them in movies. Like, we love when these big feuds come together and fight. But in real life, rivalry can literally be deadly. And so one of the things I'm talking about this morning is what we're going to learn from three wombs and what we can learn about desiring the best of Advent and how rivalry in one of these wombs led to death and destruction and decay and what we can learn from the other wombs that I read to you this morning. Elizabeth, just to set up the story, Elizabeth is an older woman married to a priest, which means she already has much esteem. To be married to a priest is a big deal in the ancient world. A priest is not a job you apply for. You're given it because you are born of the right family lineage. you got the right blood in you. And so it is a place of prestige. It is, a, it is a place where she could say, hey, my husband is a priest, and I have this thing. And not only that, it tells us she is from the line of Aaron, the Aaron, the original priest. Elizabeth comes from the right family. The scriptures tell us that she was blameless, that she was righteous. Everything that the story is telling us about Elizabeth when it starts is here is this incredible woman married to the right guy from the right family doing all the right things. And then all of a sudden Luke goes, oh, and by the way, she's barren. And we just, oh. Because if you're reading this in the ancient world, we realize despite the fact that she's Aaron's great-great-great-granddaughter, despite the fact that she married the right guy and her parents made that happen for her, despite the fact that she would have prestige in all of these things, being infertile is a place of disgrace for women in her time and place. You hear her later say, he's taken this disgrace from me. So here's this woman who should be a big deal, finding herself in a situation where her barrenness puts on her a stigma. 
children were prized and especially boys. And so she would be considered lacking despite her pedigree, despite her marriage, despite her righteousness, despite all of these things. Elizabeth is not living the good life according to ancient customs. And you can imagine, right, the nights that Zechariah and Elizabeth must have stayed up late begging God to open her womb. Right? You can imagine those nights when they're curled up together in bed and they're probably crying out to God and weeping together and say, why, why, we're doing everything you've asked us to do. We know the stories of old, of how you opened the womb of Sarah and Rebecca and all these stories. Like, Lord, what else do we have to do for you to give us a child? And many of you in this room know that pain. You know those hard nights. You've been in those places. You can imagine she's paced at night and asking God, where are you? And then in a season when you think, probably she's thinking, well, it's over for me. We only have so many childbearing years, and it tells us she's old. And so you imagine she's probably just saying, okay, this is my lot in life. And then God sends a special messenger. Zechariah is in the sanctuary, and an angel shows up, and he says, you're going to have a child. And not only are you going to have a child, you're going to have a boy. Ladies, I'm sorry. That's just, that's good news in the, in the Bible. Uh, today, women are great. Everybody should rejoice. So glad for my nieces. But in the ancient world, you're going to have a boy is one of the best things you can hear. The next best thing is you're having a, a girl. But the best thing she can hear is you're going to have a boy. And not only that, he's going to be uber special. He's going to be so important, this baby boy that you're having. It literally says he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. It says the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, will be with your baby in the womb. Prior to this time in Scripture, the Holy Spirit just fell upon people for special roles and special missions. And here's this angel saying, Elizabeth, your boy is so important that God himself will be with him in the womb. You're going to be carrying your boy and God will be with you. Can you imagine how Elizabeth must have felt? God has taken away her disgrace is what she says. Her baby's special. She must have rejoiced. And then here comes Mary. All 14 years of silly Mary. And Mary shows up, and this is her pipsqueak cousin. And Mary's never known infertility. She's not even ever been with a man. She's never stayed up late praying for this thing. She was just hanging out with girls at the well, and then all of a sudden, bam, boom, and she's carrying a baby. And not only is Mary carrying a baby, she's carrying a boy. And not only is she carrying a boy, she's carrying the boy. All of a sudden, Mary shows up, her little pipsqueak cousin, no sleepless nights begging God to open her womb, no sleepless nights wondering where God's at, never sitting through birth announcement after birth announcement, never having to wrap the gift for your neighbor who's having her seventh kid, never after going to the baby shower, and they have the audacity to complain that it's hard to change the diapers. Mary's never experienced that. And here comes Mary, bopping along, some nobody girl from a nobody town. She's not Aaron's lineage. She's not married to a priest. She's not even married. And here she comes. Oh, I'm having a boy too. Oh, and my boy's more important than your boy. In fact, my boy is your boy's God. Here comes Mary, just bopping along. Nobody girl from a nobody town. Here's this prestigious Elizabeth from the right lineage, married to the right guy, those sleepless nights, those painful prayers. And God has finally opened her womb. And then here comes Mary. And Mary's carrying God. And how might Elizabeth respond? This is an incredible moment. If, we, if I was reading this story to you the first time and I'd pause and you'd never heard the rest of the story, you can imagine putting yourself in Elizabeth's shoes and going, how would I feel? To see that someone has the thing that I have longed so long for. And yes, I have it too. But what she has been given is better than me. And I had to wait and struggle for mine. 
Well, before we talk about Elizabeth's response, we need to talk about that other womb. I said three wombs, and hopefully you're wondering, what other womb are we talking about? This story of Elizabeth and Mary is actually supposed to remind you of a story in the Old Testament, another time where babies in the womb act, where Scripture tells us babies inside of moms do things. And that story comes to us in Genesis 25, 19 through 26. What we've learned is Isaac and Rebekah are also in a season of infertility. And then God chooses to open Rebekah's womb. And not only does he open her womb, he gives her a double blessing, gives her twins. But the twins begin to fight even in the womb. And so Rebekah goes to the Lord and says, what's going on inside of me? Like, they don't have sonograms. They can't see. So Jacob punching each other. And she's like, Lord, what is happening? And God says, oh, yeah, inside of you, um, two boys, which is two nations, and they're going to be fighting each other. And the older will serve the younger, which is nonsense in a patriarchal world. God is saying something really different to them. And from the womb, from the jump, these two come out literally struggling together. The scriptures tell us that Jacob comes out grasping at Esau's heel, almost like trying to get to the finish line before Esau gets there. And their rivalry just continues throughout their life. The rivalry, it begets feuding between them. Like if you read Jacob and Esau's story as a parent, I imagine you're probably like, just get along, any of you parents that read their story. And Esau, he's a foolish man, and so the feuding leads to, like, there's just no wisdom in this guy. And so all of a sudden he comes, he's like, oh, I'm famished. And Jacob's like, all right, well, I'll give you a bowl of stew for your birthright. No, you don't share your birthright for a bowl of stew. But this is what happens when you're in rivalry. You lose sight of what really matters because you just want to win. And so the feuding begets this thing, and not only that happens, but then Jacob and his mother, they scheme against Isaac, who's blind. Horrible story. By the way, there was a meme going around this week, and a shelter posts, like, cat of the week and then bad cat of the week. And the bad cat of the week's name was Popsicle. And what he did was he stole the food from his blind roommate in the cage. And I was like, that's my sermon, right? So like, that's like, what? This is what? And so Isaac and is, is blind, and he's fooled by his wife and Jacob to steal the blessing for Esau. And then that feuding and rivalry means there's a separation of the family now. And so Jacob has to literally go live somewhere else away from his family. Family is supposed to be a united unit, and now they have to live apart because they are so contentious they can't even live together. There's deception, there's rivalry, there's fighting. And then they try to reconcile at some point, and Jacob's still scheming. And then when they're supposed to come together and be reunited, Jacob just does it, and he leaves. And then that feuding becomes two literal tribes that end up feuding together as well. The story of Jacob and Esau doesn't just end with these two men. It begets deaths as the Edomites become the descendants of Esau. And the Israelites become the descendants of Jacob. And throughout the scriptures, the Edomites and the Israelites fight each other all the time. And there's death and destruction and war and decay. In fact, when the Israelites are finally coming out of Egypt, they need to walk through the Edomite territory to get to where God is taking them. And they say, can we pass through? Now remember, they're family. And the Edomites say, hard pass. And they end up fighting, and there's destruction, and there's decay. What started as rivalry in a womb suddenly becomes these two groups of people fighting and killing and destroying. The scriptures talk about this over and over again. During King David's time, he puts the Edomites in their place, and on and on we go. What started as rivalry in a womb ends up with two warring tribes. And you know what's even more bananas? That story comes all the way to our Christmas story. I learned this this week, and I could not stop talking about it at dinner with a friend. 
I was like, yeah, 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 I don't care about your week. Listen to what I just learned. Like, I had to check, like, five commentaries. because like, how did I not know this? So the Edomites, it's in a land south of Israel. During what's called the Hasmonean period, okay, so between Malachi and Matthew, there's a war that takes place with the Maccabeans, okay, and that's the Hasmonean rulers. They go down to Edom, and they just absolutely vanquish them, and they force them to convert to Israelite law and Israelite customs. So there's bad blood between them. Well, then the Greeks come along, and the Greeks beat everybody. And so they start naming things Greek names. They say, oh, that's a nice name. Let's Greekify it. And they give it a new Greek name. The Edomite territory is no longer Edom. Under the Greek name, it becomes Idumea. Okay? So suddenly, Idumeans are the ancient Edomites. And our Christmas story opens up, and King Herod's on the throne, and he's threatened by the great-great-great-grandson of Jacob. He's worried about King Jesus being born. So what does he do? He says, you know what? We're going to go kill all the baby Jewish boys in the land. Guess where King Herod is from? Idumea. I was like, did I read that right? I had to check. I was like, how come nobody's ever told me this? I could not stop talking about this. Here I am going, hey, what starts in a womb all the way back in Genesis 25 suddenly shows up in Matthew 1. Because rivalry begets fighting, which begets warring, which begets death. And suddenly we see this is what it's like when you choose to treat other people as if they don't deserve good, that you can't be happy for them, that you can't share the promises of God. And suddenly we get to King Jesus' story, and the descendants of Esau are still trying to kill the descendants of Jacob. Rivalry begets death. Rivalry literally kills and that's what that womb is teaching us, that this rivalry thing, this thing of looking at the other person, not as your brother, not as your sister, not as your companion, not as a fellow image bearer of God, but instead as someone to compete with, to remove resources from, to, to try and harm, that story goes all the way forward to where innocent baby were, babies were slaughtered. And then the camera whips forward. And we get to our story of Elizabeth and Mary. We know what rivalry does. And now we get back to our story with Elizabeth and Mary. And now we have to ask ourselves, how is Elizabeth going to feel about Mary carrying this baby? What can their wombs teach us? Rather than continuing this pattern of rivalry and death, Elizabeth, our faithful woman, breaks that pattern. And Elizabeth shows us what it's like to rejoice with other people rather than seeing them as rivals. Elizabeth shows us what it looks like to be happy for another, even when they get the thing that you've always wanted. Elizabeth shows us what it's like to say, I love you so I can desire the best for you in addition to wanting good for you. We name this the desiring the best of Advent, and Elizabeth is a phenomenal example of what this looks like in this season. Elizabeth greets her young cousin, and John in her womb leaps, and Elizabeth herself is filled with God, and she cries out this incredible phrase, blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me? The humility that she has here, that the mother of my Lord should come to me. For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt for joy inside of me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken. So much joy. So much humility, so much truth being uttered by our elder cousin. No rivalry, no death, no broken relationships, just joy for the other. It's an amazing story. And so Elizabeth gives us a beautiful picture of what non-rivalrous relationship looks like. And we can learn a lot from her, but I just jotted down a couple. This is what we can learn from non-rivalrous relationship. The first one is it looks like joy. 
When you have relationships where you're not in rivalry with the person, but instead you want good for them, suddenly you can be full of joy when good happens for them. When we aren't rivals, we can celebrate when God does good things for the other person. Really celebrate. Elizabeth could sit there and be bitter and say, the years that I waited for this, but instead she just says, I'm so grateful that God is at work in Mary's life, bringing salvation to the world. And she gets to participate in that with joy. What a beautiful example in this Advent season, the season of joy. And she shows us what it looks like. The second thing that it looks like is it looks like humility because we can focus on the other. The thing that she utters to Mary is so incredible because she isn't like, look at us, two chicks carrying special boys. Like, look at us. This family's changing the world. And Elizabeth says to Mary, hey, blessed are you for believing what God would do. But guess who else believed what God would do? Elizabeth. And she doesn't say, look at us. We both believed. Remember, I believed first, and then you believed. Like, you remember? And it's harder for me to believe because, like, I'm old. I mean, I know the whole virgin thing. Like, that's hard to believe, too. But you remember? Like, that's not what she does. She praises Elizabeth, or praises Mary. And don't you think Mary probably needed that encouragement? Because what are people saying about Mary? Oh, she claims immaculate conception. She must have been out back behind the barn with Joseph. That girl, there's only one way you get pregnant. We're not stupid. You're not chaste. You're not good. You're nothing. You're just this no-name girl who got knocked up. And here comes Elizabeth praising Mary's faith and her faithfulness. And you can imagine as a young girl carrying God how much she probably needed to hear that from Elizabeth. When you have non-rivalrous relationship, you can be humble and you can celebrate the other person. The other thing it looks like is it looks like relationships remaining intact. Jacob and Esau never really reconcile. It's really sad. And then their tribes never reconcile, and there's just brokenness all the way up to this story of King Herod. But with Mary and Elizabeth, they spend time together. And not only that, then their boys are able to have a maintained relationship. They find comfort in each other. And then John and Jesus are not rivals. And they learn from their mother what it looks like for the older to serve the younger, like Esau was always supposed to do with Jacob. But John does it with great humility. He says things like, he must be greater so I can become less. I'm not worthy to untie his sandal. Suddenly, because there's no rivalry in these mothers, the boys learn what it looks like to be in relationship with each other and to be kind and humble and servant-hearted. And then finally, when you choose to be in a non-rivalrous relationship, it looks like participating in the mission of God. Non-rivalrous relationships allow you to say, Lord, I desire what you desire for them. When we talk about desiring the best of Advent, Martin, you heard last week saying, the best of your desires will always be found in the Lord. That's where you can find out where your true desires are. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And the reason why he'll do that is because your desires will have been formed to his desires. So when you are not rivals with people, you can look at God and say, I desire what you desire for them. And that's ultimately the mission of God. God wants to give his children good gifts, like salvation. And we can say to the Lord, I want what you want for them. Or we can say, I want to want what you want for them. If I'm being honest, I don't. I'm not there, so help me get there because I want to want what you want for them. And look, God doesn't always want like, you know, cherries, like it's not all angels and good and all that. Like sometimes what God desires for somebody is for them to to be humbled and for there to be repentance and for like it's not always these positive things, but ultimately we should want what God wants for people. 
Elizabeth and Mary teach us through their wombs what it, the desiring the best of Advent looks like. And it looks like placing your desires in God so that you can say to God, I want what you want for them, even if they're my rival. Even if I'm being honest, I don't particularly care for them. I was on the plane coming back from Phoenix yesterday, and if I just watched a 30-second video, I got to have free Wi-Fi. And so I did that, and then I got Wi-Fi, and I was like, well, I guess I'll go to Instagram. That's what everybody does. So I went to Instagram with my free Wi-Fi. And somebody had posted this new, like, word, and, they, and it was Freudenfreude. I was like, that's made up. That's not a real word. So then I started Googling it because, again, I had free Wi-Fi. And it's the, it's the antonym of schadenfreude. And how many of you all have heard schadenfreude, the German word? Yeah, where you delight in someone's misfortune. We literally did a Christmas service on schadenfreude with the Grinch. We know the word schadenfreude. Apparently, there's an antonym in the German, which is freudenfreude, where you have enjoyment in another's success. I'm not surprised I didn't know that word existed. It's a lot easier to delight in the downfall of others, isn't it? Like, if I'm being honest, there are people that when they stub their toe, I'm like, good. I mean, oh, you okay? <laughs> like, I loved, and Mario's answer is not here, that USC lost, y'all. <laughs> As an OU fan who was abandoned by Lincoln Riley, I was like, <laughs> that's what you get. Now, that's not healthy. I should want good for him. I should want Freud and... I should want enjoyment in another's success. Advent is about desires. It is. Advent is about, look, we desire gifts. Like, this is the time of year we're kind of expectant. We're like, I'm going to get a present under a tree. I'm excited. Like, we desire time with loved ones or maybe desire time not with certain loved ones, right? But there are desires in the season. We desire a break from work. And none of these desires are necessarily bad. But our ultimate desires are always found in the Lord. It's what Martin taught us last week, and it's what we're going to continue to see in this series. And our best desires are when we look at God and go, we want what you want. And if we do that, if we really want what God wants, you will find that you start wanting good for others, even the people that feel like your rival. Because you'll recognize that in God's kingdom, it's one of abundance. Part of what's wrong with rivalry is you think there's not enough. So I have to get mine. But it, what Advent teaches us in the kingdom of God is, is a kingdom of abundance. Elizabeth, you got a baby too. Mary, you got a baby. We get babies. It's win-win in the kingdom of God. And so how do we do this? How do we practice Freud and Freud? How do we practice saying to the Lord, I want what you want? Well, may I suggest if right now as I'm preaching, you are thinking of your Esau. You have someone in your mind that you're like, if I'm being honest, I like it when they stub their toe. If that's you, may I suggest maybe just an Advent calendar of prayer. And each day you wake up of Advent and say, God, change my heart so that I desire what you desire for them. Change my heart. Or maybe it's just giving your rival a gift, no strings attached. As a way of saying to them, hey, I want good for you because God wants good for you. And so here's a gift. Because God gives good gifts and I want to be like my father. Or maybe it's sending a Christmas card to your rival and congratulating and encouraging them for the thing that, if you're being honest, you kind of wanted it. But you can celebrate that God gave it to them because you do want good for them because you're trying your best to desire for them what God desires for them. I don't know what God is calling you into in this season, but I know this, that in this Advent, we are learning to desire the best. We can learn from Elizabeth and her womb what it means to live joyfully and humbly, which means that we can say, God, whatever good gifts you've given to others, I can celebrate because ultimately those are my brothers and sisters. 
And I can delight in the fact that there is a God who gives good gifts, and I trust that he'll give them to me too. And maybe I didn't get that one, but I know that God does not withhold good things from his children. Advent is about desiring the best, and I believe that we can desire the best if we will look at others, not as our rivals, but as our co-humanity. And if we will look at the Lord as the one who gives good gifts and we can rejoice in that, I think we will find that this Advent is one of more joy, more humility, and more of the mission of God going out into the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, you have given us the example of Elizabeth. What a beautiful example. And Lord, I'm so grateful for the baby and Mary, that through that baby all salvation comes. Blessed is Mary for believing God. And her blessing has gone out into the world and to me and to my friends in here who called on your son's name. Would you help us to place our desires in that baby boy? Would you help us to be able to turn to you and say, Lord, I desire what you desire. Or at least I'm trying to. And would you shape and form us into people who want what you want because you always want the greatest good. Would you shape and form us to do that? Bless my friends in this Advent season. Shape our desires to desire the best of Advent. We ask all of this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And God's people said,